first subject we're going to be dealing with is um, reforming masculinity. So I'm going to start out with just two questions here. Number one, what is biblical masculinity? And number two, is there a war on men in society? And I think uh, we can come up with a resounding yes on that. So in the Bible, strong men are the solution. And in the world today, strong men are the problem. So we can see that the Bible and the culture are going in two different directions. Men naturally want to be strong. Men are made to be strong. Moses says to Joshua in Deuteronomy, says, be strong and courageous and lead the people into the promised land. David says to his son Solomon on his dying bed in 1 Kings 2, be strong and show yourself a man. And in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, 16.13, Paul says to the Corinthians, act like men. So in our culture today, they hear that and say, that's really bad. That's evil. Culture misinterprets the Bible meaning of strong and courageous. Instead, they interpret this as abusive and cruel. When you look around and see men, and because of their strength, men have caused a lot of problems today. As a matter of fact, our prisons today, 90% are men in our prisons throughout the United States today. So men have caused major damage. The world's answer to reverse, to reverse this problem is just reduce the testosterone that's in men. Reverse inject them. The answer is men need to become more like women, soft and quiet. However, the Bible says men need to become more like Christ. And they need to find their strength in God through the power of the gospel. Now listen, this doesn't unleash men to do whatever they want. But men need to come under the rule of Christ, which means bearing fruit throughout their lives. Three characteristics of a biblical man. A man that lives to protect. A man that provides, and a man that is a spiritual leader. A man that has faith and trust in Christ. So men, I want to end with this charge on us today. I want you to seek out the role that God has given men in this world and fill it unapologetically and unafraid. That's your charge. The next subject I'm going to talk about in reforming in our lives is reforming marriage. It is undisputable, indisputable, can't be argued with. Marriage is in desperate need of a reformation. Half of all marriages have already failed. Now add to that the percentage 
and the amount of marriages that currently would love to be divorced and are planning on divorce. And add to the amount of marriages Hello? Testing. Do I need to go back and repeat some of that? So 50% of all marriages have already failed. Now add to that the percentage and the amount of marriages that currently would love to be divorced and are planning on divorcing. Then add to that the number of marriages that are not yet considering divorce but are totally miserable in their marriage. And studies say, hey, if you want to go through a divorce and try it again, you got a 60% chance of a divorce. And do it the third time, then you got a 70% chance. The bottom line is this. Marriage is God's plan. Marriage reflects the gospel. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it's a marriage between Christ and his church. Marriage, our marriages are supposed to be a reflection to the world of Jesus Christ. To take marriage lightly is to take God lightly and to trivialize the gospel. So I want to give a charge to those in search of getting married. Be careful who you marry. Marrying a person that is always discontent is hell. Marrying a person that's argumentative, quarrelsome, and contentious is hell. Marrying a person that is unreasonable is torture. And now I want to give a charge to those that are married. But before I do, I want to ask you this. I want to ask every married couple to stand to your feet. And if you're in this room and you're not with your spouse, that's okay. Just stand up anyways. What will you say to God when he asks you? When you stand before Christ, how did you reflect the gospel in your marriage? How did you reflect the gospel in your marriage to the world, a dying, hurting world that you were supposed to be an example for. How did you do it? Oh, please be seated and thank you. So as an elder in this church, I want to encourage you to work harder on your marriage. Work harder on your marriage than you have up to this time right now. No marriage is perfect. But you made a covenant under God until death do you part, for better and for worse. Amen. Third subject I have is reforming stewardship. Duties of a biblical steward. A steward really is a manager. And we manage everything that we have or we should be managed. We are called by God 
to manage everything we have. Manage our talents, our time, our money, our relationships, our health, our families, our serving, the word. And by that I mean where does the word fit into our lives? We need to manage that and manage our marriage. All for God's glory. Everything was created by God. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything belongs to the Lord. Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. God has called all of us to be good stewards. Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Next point, we'll be held accountable for our stewardship. Matthew 25 to 29, we're very familiar with the parable that Jesus told about the talents which he doled out. Two of the people doubled it and the last one buried it in the ground. And Jesus says, for to everyone who has, more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does shall be taken away. Next point, good stewardship will be rewarded. In Colossians 3, 23 and 24, it says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward in, the inherit, in your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So I want to end by charging you with this, and I'm going to charge you with a scripture from Romans 14, 12. It says, So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Thank you, church, for your time this morning. Thank you, Brother Dave. Um, that's what it feels like when you get a mandate. <laughs> I turned to Andre and said, I'm nervous. <laughs> We've got to get our act together. Dave's, Dave brought to us the charge to reform ma uh, masculinity, marriage, stewardship. I want to start by bringing a charge to reform femininity. Femininity a very precious thing before God that has gone missing in our culture and in our world for most part. Not altogether, but for most part. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4 actually explains what true femininity before God really is. He says, do not let, speaking to wives, do not let your adornment be merely outward. Arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. He says, don't let that be, don't let your your adornment merely be that. It doesn't say do not do that. It says don't rely upon that to make you beautiful. Rather, in verse 4, let it be the hidden person of the heart, not the revealed, not the one that people view with the eye as much, but rather the hidden person of the heart 
with the incorruptible beauty. I mean, that beauty does not age, that beauty does not fade, that beauty does not go away. As a matter of fact, it becomes more and more beautiful. That incorruptible beauty, and then it explains what that beauty is, of a gentle and quiet spirit. Then, look at this, which is very precious in the sight of God. That kind of beauty is very, not precious, very precious in God's eyes. Now, Peter said that this woman, who is precious in the sight of God, has these two attributes, gentle spirit, quiet spirit. Let's just look at what this really means, because I think that that could be misunderstood. The term gentle does not imply weakness. If I say to somebody, gentle now, it's because there's a very, there's an ability to not be. <laughs> Are you with me? So gentle now, Tina. It's because there's an ability for her to not be gentle. God wouldn't tell a person that couldn't, that, that, that was strong. He didn't have to tell a person that wasn't strong to be gentle. But he has to tell the, strength, the strong, be gentle now. So it does not mean weakness. It in fact means self-restraint. That means to say the woman with a gentle spirit is able to restrain her emotions and her impulses. She can hold back. She, knives aren't always out. She can hold back. And it's particularly referring to her husband. So in an age where women are encouraged to roar, hear me, woman, I, uh, you know, roar, at times even completely unrestrained, the Apostle Peter here encourages wives today to be gentle in their responses, especially to their husband, because this is what is precious to God, very precious to God. Secondly, Peter encourages wives to have a quiet spirit. This does not mean that the women are not to have a voice. It does not mean that they're not to speak their mind. It does not mean that they are to be quiet in volume. Don't raise your voice. Know your place, woman. That's not what this means. To have a quiet spirit, in fact, means she is a peaceful person, not always on the warpath. Peaceful, not always on the warpath. What does it mean to have a quiet spirit? She has a well-ordered spirit, as opposed to always being an emotional hot mess. She has a well-ordered mind, as opposed to always being chaos. The woman with a quiet spirit is true to her own personality. And she could be whatever her personality allows her to be. And it's wonderful when they are. I love a vibrant, happy wife, as opposed to. <laughs> she, she could be whatever her personality allows her to be and still have a quiet spirit because even if, she, if she's outgoing, if she's lively, if she's animated, if she's spirited, if she's vivacious, that's all wonderful. That's a gift to men. She could be introverted. She could be quiet. She could be content. That's a gift. But what she cannot be, and be quiet, have a quiet spirit, a person with a quiet spirit cannot also be contentious. She cannot also be filled with strife consistently. 
She cannot also be discontent. Always just discontent. Never content. Always discontent. And constantly unimpressed with life. She cannot be that woman. The one who is, has a quiet spirit can't be the one who can never be pleased. You know those. Just never, can't ever be pleased. Nothing will ever be good enough. Maybe it's nice the first three minutes when something is new, but then even that wears out within the next five minutes. Nothing can be enough. So the charge to women in general, and specifically to wives, is to ensure that you do not see your beauty as something that is outward only. But that your beauty has to do with that which is precious to God, and not just precious, but very precious to Him. A quiet and gentle spirit. Vivacious, yes. Wise, absolutely. Counsel, oh, she can give counsel. Direction, oh, she's wonderful, but no, no, not contentious. A quiet spirit, a spirit of contentment, a spirit that is well-ordered. This is the charge for those who want to recover femininity, according to um, our verse here, which is, I believe it's First Peter chapter 3, I think, is it? Number five, a charge to reform is to reform to the sufficiency of Scripture. And this is the last one. You see, if you scratch lightly on the surface of the church um, in general today, you don't have to scratch deep, just lightly. You will find that this, the church is, again, looking for sources outside of Scripture to find her view about God, her view about faith, her view about salvation, and who God truly is. It's one of my... This is what I do on my off time. I talk to people about who the Bible says God is. People who don't believe it. <laughs> because <clears throat> they believe God is like them. Well, if I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. Well, you ain't God, are you? <laughs> and then if you push it a little further and you just give verse after verse, you get to the third verse, they go like, well, I can't serve a God like that. Well, that's exactly my point. He is the God of the Bible. Now, you do serve a God, but it ain't Him. So we have to reform to the sufficiency of Scripture where the Scripture becomes sufficient to us in knowing God, in knowing what we need to know about God. He gave us what we need to know about Him. He didn't accidentally lose a book. No, He gave us what we need to know about Him. And the word that He gave us is perfect, it says, and it is sufficient. But people in our day are searching elsewhere. For most part, subjectively. They will say things like, well, I don't know. I don't think God cares about gender as much as what He cares about you being kind. Um, as if those are the only two options to choose. No. <laughs> Be kind. And uh, the, the reason I'm talking to you about the fact that you are a man and not a woman is because I'm being kind. Okay, it's the same thing. You get it? <laughs> Somebody posted a, um, a minister yesterday, a video of a minister. His short video received a massive amount of positive comments. I mean, if you get somebody that says something totally outlandish, it's so funny how people want to support that person. And 
It was about Christians needing to know that it's important for the world to know them as people who love, not people who criticize. So I'm thinking, okay, now why don't I like this? Because I understand what they're implying, right? Stop criticizing. I'm like, you just criticized me. I feel criticized by you. <laughs> Isn't it? And I thought, like, you're so judgmental. I am not being critical. If, if, if you point out a truth, it's true whether I believe it or not. That's all. We have, we have, to, we have to land on that truth, right? So I wondered why it is I didn't like that statement, even though on the surface it just seems morally superior. It seems, of course it needs to be that way. People need to know us for our love, not for our criticism. But I know the spirit behind that. Behind that. You know the spirit behind that also. It's like, stop telling me what to do and stop giving me scriptures you're supposed to love, and you're supposed to be known for your love, not for you criticizing me. So that's the spirit behind that. But I thought, well, you know, the way to look at this is this way. The disciples, they knew Jesus. The Pharisees knew Jesus, but they knew Jesus in different ways. The disciples knew Jesus for the love that he portrayed when he hung on the cross for them. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they knew Jesus uh, as somebody calling them names. <laughs> You vipers, sons of hell, you are from your father the devil. It's like, Jesus, you're supposed to be known for your love, not for your criticism. <laughs> you see, he was known for his love by those who loved him. You see, the church again is scratching for truth. But they're searching in all the wrong places because they're searching in themselves and not in scriptures. They're searching a subjective truth not an objective one. So to say the Scriptures are sufficient means to say that the Bible is all we need to equip us for this life, for faith, for salvation, and for morality. Next time you have an argument with an atheist, just ask him, where did you get your morality from? And he will have to say he got it from what we call the consensus theory of truth. Well, everybody believes murder is wrong. You go like, no, they don't. There are some people who don't believe it's wrong. So if you have enough of those people in the same room, does it become right? No, it doesn't become right. Why not? Well, because it's wrong to murder. Yeah, you got that from my God. You know, you have to borrow your, moral, your standards from the Christian worldview in order to have one at all. You don't even have meaning unless you borrow it from the Christian worldview. My point I'm making here is that we don't need anything else to give us purpose, to give us direction about who God is, to give us the, to give us the dimensions of the, sa the saving grace that God saved us by and the means by which He saved us. There's nothing else you need but Scripture. Paul warned the church at Colossae that there's going to be temptation coming your way. It's going to knock on your door. That's going to say, look elsewhere. Just like what happened to Eve in the garden. You should look elsewhere. He says in Colossians 2 verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, traditions of men, traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. This is coming your way. You're going to be tempted to look elsewhere for truth. 
Paul's words to the Galatians indicate the soundness of delivering a message outside of, uh, outside of um, uh, the Bible. It's a serious thing to deliver some message that's not in Scripture. Galatians 1.8, it says, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, in other words, than what has been written, let him be accursed, not the message, him, the one who delivers that message. It's a serious thing. So our charge to our church family here at Christ Nation is to recover your view and practice of the sufficiency of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, today, as we enter this season of celebrating the Reformation of 1517, we feel you knocking on the doors of the churches around the world, especially here in the United States. You're knocking on the doors of the churches, and you said, if anyone lets you in, you will come in. And Lord, I pray that that will never be the case, that you will never even be outside of this church, Christ Nation. You would never have to knock on our door because we live reformed. We consistently reform ourselves around your word. We're always reforming around scripture. Lord, we repent as men. We repent today for thinking masculinity is something that we find in gyms or on the sports field. But it's truly something we find when we know the role you have called us to play. And we, re we, we refuse to relinquish that role. But we remain faithful. Lord, we, re we repent for not allowing our marriages to be reformed. Around your blueprint for marriage. Marriage is yours. You designed it. And like Dave said, to trivialize marriage is to trivialize you. To trivialize marriage is to trivialize the gospel. Because it is a type, a shadow, and a message to the world. Lord, we repent. We repent for bad stewardship. That we have lost the concept that we have been purchased with the blood of Christ, and we are no longer our own, but we belong to Him. Therefore, all we have is His. We are only managers of what belongs to Him. That we will now manage all we have, our time, our priorities, our relationships, our finances, our families, that we will manage all you have given to us on your behalf because we will be held accountable. Lord, we repent for allowing Jezebel to speak and to distort true femininity and true womanhood even in the church. Lord, that the women in this church will be those who are precious in your eyes, God. 
And Lord, we turn from any one of the ways that has deformed these parts of life. Lord, we repent for looking elsewhere instead of just to scriptures for truth. Allowing scriptures to be brought to our philosophy and not our philosophy to scriptures. But everything is viewed through the lens of what, what did God say about this? Lord, that we will not search within ourselves, that we will not search for subjective truth, but we will search for scriptural objective truth in Jesus' mighty name. And all those who love the Lord said, Amen. 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 Did you get something out of the Word today? Did you get challenged today?